All right. Here we go. So, so okay. Well, here's uh, one quiz question for you on the way back. How big is the park? Has everybody been doing the math there? Yeah, yes, no, maybe. Well, 10,894 acres, 17 square miles, or 44 square kilometers if you're a metric-minded person. And if that winds up being the only tall grass prairie we can say we preserved and protected and defended, I would say we probably failed in that overall mission. Because again, it's gonna fall to those folks who live outside the park, who try to make a living on this landscape, the landowners, the land users, what have you, to kind of find a way to make a living out here. Um, and do it in such a way that others who come later can make a living. Because they probably more than most understand that there cannot be a functioning economy without a functioning ecology. So if we can be of any benefit to the wider community, perhaps it is to, uh, as a place to demonstrate and educate about uh, into uh, different methods of kind of regenerative restorative types of agriculture uh, ways of growing and grazing that would return nutrient and resources to the soil rather than just continually extracting them and to pull that off out here is mainly just to change up maybe just the fire cycle out here the role of fire is well known and fundamental, but maybe we can uh, change it up a little bit. The timing, the placement, the frequency of fire. Because in a natural setting, fire would happen every three to five years. You know, when lightning or something would hit the ground, some, some random act that would ignite the fire and burn across the landscape. But these days, fire is far more frequent it's generally kind of hemmed in at the beginning of the growing season, mid-March to mid-April. Um, and then that is quickly followed up by about three to four months of uh, cattle grazing, 90 to 100 days of intense cattle grazing. And that in the short term, I mean, that, that grows a lot of grass, which ends up growing a lot of cattle. But when that pattern is repeated over and over and over again, it starts to have some long-term effect. Very similar to, say, sharpening a knife blade over and over again. I mean, you have to sharpen it usually to get it to cut well. And, and you do, you cut, you use the knife, you go sharpen it, you go use it again, you sharpen it up some more, you go bang some nails with it, uh, open some paint cans, pry up some two by fours, and then and then all of a sudden, many, many years later, you realize, wow, my knife doesn't cut as well as it once did. Um, I, I gotta work harder at it to get the same effect. Uh, so uh, I need a new one. Toss the old one, buy yourself a new one. But it's a little hard, you know, to toss away an entire landscape. So maybe, uh, maybe we can kind of rebuild the edge on these pastures by just changing up when you burn. Maybe burn a little bit in the fall, burn a little bit in the spring, or move that burning around. Burn one side of a road one year, the next other side of the road the other next year. 
the another side of a creek the third year and just rotate it around because that is uh, that has a nice little side effect the grazing animals are also inspired to I mean they move too they follow the green grass just like they always did and cattle for all their domestication still have that habit um, they still seek out the fresh grass growth and another benefit of that rotational burning is that the landscape that doesn't get burned or grazed as heavily well that gets to simply rest uh, just as beneficial for plants as it is for people um, because uh, it's a very similar effect as to going to the gym over and over again I mean the first few trips you're getting stronger faster healthier but on and on you start getting a little say beat up a little weak a little worn out and many of these pastures are exactly that they're still fairly healthy but they're feeling a little stressed out and worn out by all by always being forced or challenged to grow up to uh, grow the to grow the green part of the plant the stem the leaf the blade of grass that gathers the sunshine and and such and the energy and then if it's always going up it's not growing down as much and as the roots weaken um, it cannot absorb as much resources and other plants will do will, will will go after those resources I mean checks and balances aren't just for government class anymore there it, it's a very ecological idea ecologies are balanced are are uh, are kept in check man checks and balances I can't even say it without describe it without saying the word but uh but yeah when when some plants dominate over others when disturbances begin to take hold well that's when other i mean ecosystems get weak and other plants begin to fill in the gaps like that yellow plant back there that is a very that is what is often derided as a weed um it's called broomweed but um but it's a good, it responds to disturbance quite well. So by moving the disturbances, that encourages other plants to grow. I mean, cattle will not eat that. So, so that's one reason why it grows so well. Um, but, uh, but by moving the disturbance around, grazing can become a benefit. By moving the fire around, that spreads out the, uh, the, the kind of lets spreads out the impact a little bit lets other plants rest some so so it kind of strengthens the community of plant life as a whole especially when considering uh, like invasive plants and any plant can be invasive any life form can be invasive given the opportunity especially if they have no natural competitors and there is a particular legume a forb out here called Cerisia lespidiza or East Asian bush clover and that uh, that's a plant that has no real competitors in North America that had plenty back in East Asia so it was a depression era experiment in, uh, in animal forage and soil conservation but it had the unintended effect of just becoming a real hazard to grazing because it squeezes out many plants that grazing animals will eat so it is a it is a public enemy number one out here in the plant world um, but uh, 
But again, another benefit of all this uh, rotational burning and grazing, I'll slow down for you to get a good look at the buffalo there, is that the habitat that gets left over becomes the land, becomes the home for the vast majority of tall grass prairie animals who are not the charismatic megafauna. That's the name of my garage band, by the way. Um, the buffalo, the elk, the pronghorn, the gray wolves, the grizzly bears, the animals that get all the magazine covers, you know, the big, highly visible animals. Uh, they have uh, the additional benefit of being able to make it in other parts of uh, North America, which they do, to much to their credit. But other animals, the vast majority of these tall grass animals are specialists. They, they have adapted their entire lives and livelihoods to making it, to living in the tall grass. And when the grass disappears, so do they. And a good example of that is the greater prairie chicken. It's about as big as my hat, minus the brim, of course. Um, about three pounds of bird that, um, that lives most of its time on the ground. Um, hiding in the grass, laying its eggs, going after seeds and insects, roosting the next generation, raising the next generation. But it cannot do that out in the wide open spaces. I mean, it, that's just asking for trouble. That's just, uh, that's just uh, only a matter of time before a red-tailed hawk or some other predator animal comes and nicks it away for, for dinner as the main course, you know. So, uh, so as tall grass has disappeared, so have their numbers. They've declined quite a bit. And they share the fate of ground-dwelling birds across North America, the sage grouse of Wyoming and the Dakota oil patches, the lesser prairie chicken of uh, the Panhandle region, Texas, Oklahoma, Southwest Kansas. But at least in our neck of the woods, maybe we can kind of demonstrate some, again, some different methods of burning and grazing, changing up the, the way we do things in order that all life forms can have a, a better shot at life, having their cake and eating it too. Maybe just not all at once. But then we kind of round, come around uh, to the buffalo. The big, one of the big draws out here is an opportunity to kind of see the buffalo and uh, and it's a night and it's really cool that the park is uh, playing a big role in maintaining the the again the lineage and the legacy of North America's largest native grazing animal the bison um, because again at the end of the 19th century there were less than a thousand left down from an estimated 40 million at the start of the 19th century so roughly within a lifetime they went from a literal force of nature to functional extinction. And like I was saying earlier, the, that decline was probably, I mean, tragic though it is, it may have in fact been the wake-up call that got the attention of the culture at that time. And it was a culture that pretty much assumed that nature again was infinite and humans would never alter it. And it was just, uh, and you would just have to take what comes. But, um, but by the 1870s again, it was becoming pretty obvious that human activity was starting to have a measurable effect. And fortunately, there were individuals at the time willing to kind of 
kind of stake their reputations on the on the speculation that if there is a human element to the problem maybe there's a human element to the solution can, can uh, and so that was kind of a that was kind of a radical idea but they were willing to put their money where their mouths were and yes I'm talking about Theodore Roosevelt and others who formed an organization specifically aimed at acquiring bison where they could still be found transported them to the Bronx Zoo in New York City to just basically wait wait out the time and and the wait until a new uh, a new time came along when the bison could be safely reintroduced back to their back to their homeland and that opportunity arose in 1914 at the newly established Wind Cave National Park. Wind Cave was 1903, 1914, 11 years after that park was established. It got a it got its herd back. About a dozen or so bison were reintroduced up there. Purebred stock again, living there in New York City, and that population has been growing over time to the present number of about four or five hundred. Um, but, uh, but in order to keep that genetic lineage going, of course, you got to find good places to put the extras. And in 2009, after only 12 years of existence, this park had grown to such a mature state that it could finally take on some bison of its own and be a part of that maintenance, restoration, rebuilding process. Probably not going to be 40 million anytime soon, but uh, but it beats zero any day of the week. Extinction is not uh, extinction is final, no matter what they say in Hollywood. Um, the uh, so, uh, but it is nice to have the bison here. We have about a hundred these days, 87 adults, 13 newborns, and they'll probably be rounded up here in a couple of months to. Uh, give everyone a good look, a good once over, test out who's related to whom, probably shuffle out about 20 or so to herds of similar genetics, give this herd some more room to grow. So, because, uh, which is very good. It's not every day you get a chance to correct a, uh, an error in your, in your activity, even if it was an error born of sheer ignorance. We don't, they didn't know any better, perhaps. I mean, the word ecology didn't even exist until the 1870s. So, so the whole idea of interrelatedness of all life was still a bit of an alien idea in many circles. But there they are, and a good portion of them there. And yeah, it's uh, even when you stand uh, six and a half feet tall at the shoulder, these grasses can kind of do still a good job at hiding you there especially when you're sitting down there pretty cool but um but you've heard me call these animals both buffalo and bison you might be wondering when i will if i will ever make up my mind and fortunately that's an ant that's a question that has two right answers buffalo and bison i like the word buffalo i like both words i mean but bison is the scientifically accurate term for that big brown animal back there. But buffalo lives on. It's a nice reminder of this area's Hispanic lineage, legacy. 
because again it was Spanish speakers who came here first and wrote down what they saw and upon upon seeing that animal in the 15 1600s to their understanding well they thought they were looking at a buffalo I mean it did not resemble la vaca vaca Spanish word for cow it looked like el buffalo uh, which uh, which of course becomes buffalo in English two F's um, and that's the way it stayed for I don't know 300 years until the middle of the 19th century when it became obvious that the what we've been calling a buffalo had more in common with a European grazing animal called a weasant and that translates to English as bison and so bison bison the scientific latinized name of North America's largest grazing animal but uh, but how does the state song of Kansas go again oh give me a home where the bison roam or the deer and the antelope play or deer and the pronghorn play excuse me uh, there I mean yeah you wouldn't be uh, you wouldn't be wrong if you wanted to sing home on the range that way but maybe it's a little uh, poetically clumsy liter- lyrically maybe a little boring and I've been accused of a lot in my 24-year federal career but lyrically boring and poetically clumsy are accusations I do not want on my rap sheet so I'm gonna stick with Buffalo and let the chips fall where they may <laughs> so but here we are about whoa we're getting our money's worth today about five minutes from the ranch headquarters where I'll unload you all which gives me one last chance to unload uh, ruminate upon the state of affairs uh, here on uh, planet earth it seems like there's all sorts of wild and crazy things happening on our planet these days oh you wanted to drop off yes uh, my uh, my apologies there you go yeah right up the road there yeah you're very welcome yeah okie doke thanks thanks for the reminder there yeah all right but uh yeah where was i yeah rumination deep thinking um and i still like to think of our planet as the living embodiment of a latin phrase you might know e pluribus unum from diversity comes unity but if that's not quite your cup of tea and that's all right maybe your car is a more kind of kind of acceptable or appetizing an analogy i mean your car has got a lot of parts too to make it go like let's say your water pump take that for example uh it might leak you might know about it you might not know about it you might be ignoring the problem or you might think your mechanic is just making it all up and you're just going to go about your business and your car will get you there for a short amount of time it'll get hotter and hotter along the way until one day when you are really needing to get somewhere your car will be too hot to to do it for you anymore and life from that as you knew it from that point forward just got a lot more difficult and i like to imagine the grasses of the world is kind of like that water pump i mean they're not so flashy most of the time they're meek and humble just not out there for doing it for the gram or for the insta or for the facebook likes or whatever but if you ignore them in any significant way they will clap you right back and remind you that they are indeed the meek that have inherited the earth and that ain't bragging 
because grasses can be found on the average 30% of the land, planet's land surface. One third of our land surface on Earth is a grassland. And you know these areas already, believe it or not. I mean, you got the prairie of North America, French word for meadow and all that, taken from the Latin word pratum for meadow. Then you move south to Argentina and you uh, find your way find your way on to the Pampas, Pampas region of Argentina, Uruguay down there in South America. Then you move uh, across the Atlantic to Africa. Now you're standing on the savannas of Africa, 2.7 billion acres of grassland in Africa. Then you move north to Europe where they share a grassland with Asia called the Steppe, a 5,000 mile green highway connecting the cultural east and the cultural west one of the longest one of the oldest most ancient human highways is uh, are the steppe uh, beginning in probably present-day Hungary and Romania on the European side stretching eastward through the rest of Europe into Central Asia Mongolia Manchuria uh, there in northeast China then you leap to the south and you wind up on the rangelands of Australia also known of course as the outback and all the plants of these grasslands, grassland, grasses included, absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, measured in the megatons. And they, of course, blend it with sunshine and water and other soil minerals and create a carbon compound for themselves called glucose, meaning energy, sugar. And then they emit the oxygen as a byproduct, which is all very beneficial for us air breathers, you know. And then what happens to that, to the glucose, to the carbon in the glucose? Well, it becomes part of the plant. It's organic, that's the definition there. Carbon-based life form. Uh, and, then, uh, and then whatever grows eventually must decompose. So remember now where most of a grass plant is found underground in the roots. So all that carbon that was in the atmosphere has now been sequestered, captured, recycled uh, into the living soil, making it more fertile and more able to support future generations of plant growth. And scientists are only just now realizing how big a piece of the puzzle grasslands really are. And it's not a moment too soon either because grasslands have been nursing and nurturing humanity upon the earth for maybe as long as there's ever been a humanity on the earth. And now they look to us, their children, for our help. So thank you for your help today, for choosing to be here today, because life is for we the people. We are what we choose to be. And you can either choose to kind of be reactive uh, individually, and then you get to uh, suffer the consequences, or you can choose to kind of participate in existence, kind of... Uh, together as a group in a more larger, more ecological, dare I say, fashion. And by being here today in some small way, you have done exactly that. As individuals, you've come together collectively, proving or bravely demonstrating what E Pluribus Unum could still be in America and around the world. So. So congratulations, you've made your kindergarten teachers very proud today, but, but now is not the time to rest, of course. 
far more existential challenges await us all in the next few decades. So, so definitely use today and every day to uh, strengthen your inalienable ability to choose. Um, because ultimately, Mother Nature always bats last and she never ever strikes out. So, Terra Alta Prata Robustior. And like, he's really lost it. He's not even speaking English anymore. Like, well, that's Latin. I promised you a Latin phrase, remember? And so, with you being here today, the tall grass is definitely stronger and more resilient. But of course, that's just for today. The only day we ever really get. Destiny uh, comes for us all eventually. So, uh, so with apologies to uh, dead poets, past, present, and future. See if I can. Uh, I give to you. Let's see. Uh, la, 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 la. Gather ye rosebuds. Enjoy their perfume. But pay heed to this omen tide. Uh, tomorrow lives not for us to bloom, but for our fruit's fluorescence to abide. In other words, carpe diem cordate. Carpe diem cordate. That's your assignment for today. Look that up. I think carpe diem, we all can kind of figure out that cordate, that's, that's your challenge here. So thank you very much, y'all. Thank you.